and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David, Yes. how you doing? Are we going a mile a minute? You and I were talking beforehand. We're both... Uh, yeah. Like, we had this episode to do, but it's, like, late at night. Mm-hmm. We both have shit to do after this. Yes. <laughs> and, like, we both... Like, you just got here. I just got... Like, you just got off work. I just got from... Or you, another thing. I was in a different... Yeah. Yeah. And I just got out of a screen... Out of a screening. Yeah. Um, so and like, how, how behind... Like, the, how behind the curtain do we want to show? Oh, and... <laughs> yeah, also... <laughs> I left the charger for the laptop to record on at work. So, I'm worried that we're going to, like, run out of battery while recording yeah. the episode. Um, so, it's a race against time. Yeah. But... <clears throat> um, but I'm in a good mood because I did... Uh, I got a couple of reasons... Well, the main reason I got to your neighborhood a little bit before you were home. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to explore your neighborhood and found out you've got a great like local like tavern pub type of bar mm-hmm. in your neighborhood that I'm going to like, I'm going to show up early more often <laughs> just to like go hang out at this bar. Well, and the number of times that, it, that you, you get to my house uh, when we're about to record and, and you've just come from work. So you're like, I'm in a bad mood. And so now I feel like. Now, if we push things back about 20 minutes, maybe you'll be in a slightly better mood. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Although it was the kind of bar where it's like, I ordered a Stella and I think they were like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) hoity toity. Yeah, exactly. Um, There's you. You have not watched any of uh, have you watched any cinematic Titanic or rift tracks or anything? No. Um, there was one, it was cinematic Titanic and it was, uh, I think it's called the movie is called legacy of blood. It was like this 1970s, uh, uh, it's, it's, a, it's pretty exploitative, but essentially like, Oh, a family goes off to like their, their manor and are killed one by one. And clearly they had David, they had, uh, David Carradine for like two days. And that was like a, their big claim to the to claim to fame. But there comes a moment and just everyone's just an asshole in this family. You're not rooting for anyone. Uh, and so there's a moment where they've decided. So someone's dead, someone has been killed. And so this other guy just like pours drinks for everybody. And, and I think Joel Hodgson's like, all right, booze, we're giving you all the power. And, uh, and that, yeah, that's, that has stayed with me. Man, uh, speaking of Carradines, I've been, uh, Natalie and I have been rewatching the first season of Deadwood. We're going to rewatch all of Deadwood leading up to yeah. the, the movie premiering at the end of May. Um, and I had forgotten just how, I know you don't like this term, but just how sweet and charming the bromance is between Bullock and Hickok. Yeah. Like, uh, cause we're now we're, now we're past like Hickok has been killed and we're, and we're to the part where like the Bullock Elma Garrett romance mm-hmm. is starting. And I commented, I was like, I think Bullock has less of a crush on Elma Garrett than he did on Bill Hickok. <laughs> like it's so sweet. And yet what's interesting to me is that Bullock still is kind of a, I was going to say straight shooter. I guess that's true. But also like he's just, he doesn't necessarily come across like a schoolgirl. Like he still is very no nonsense. And so I think Hickok finds that very refreshing. Yeah. Like he, it's not like Bullock is like, Mr. Hickok, Mr. Hickok or anything like that. Because he he would hate that. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's that wonderful moment where they both uh, fire on that one guy and the guy dies in the pilot. And, and yeah. And Hickok is like, he goes, was that me or you Montana? And then Bullock's like, my money'd be on you. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, it's a nice moment of humility for Hickok. Uh-huh. And then in the, and then sort yeah. of the little, uh, uh, 
not not a suck up, but just yeah. uh, certainly he's kind of in awe of of Hickok yeah. and the fact that he gets to hang out with him. It's like, are you kidding me? You're well, Bill Hickok. You, it's probably you. Um, and one of my other favorite moments is uh, Hickok is helping Bullock and Star build their hardware store, mm-hmm. and there's some guy, a drunk, harassing Bill Hickok about like. I saw you in whatever in Abilene or whatever. And, and when he finally, like finally goes away and Hickok asked Bullock, he's like, were you born patient or did you have to learn it? And the the funny thing about that is that Seth Bullock is the least patient. Oh yeah. (laughs) He's the most hot headed character on the show. It's one of the things I love about it. Yeah. yeah, Compared to Bill Hickok. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about. What I wanted to talk about that's on my mind um and on the mind grind your gears no i'm not sure i I think i think there's been i'm trying to be well first off i'm trying to remind myself with this as i do with politics that twitter is not the real world that that's a good thing to remind yourself (laughs) so i try to remind myself but in the los angeles cinephile community there's been an uproar a a hubbub Mm -hmm. this week because it has been it it was leaked i guess it wasn't supposed to come out some people who weren't supposed to talk talked to some some reporters and i guess netflix is looking to buy the egyptian theater which Mm -hmm. is currently owned by the american cinematheque which is a non-profit uh repertory theater company that shows movie shows old movies at the Egyptian theater in mm-hmm. Hollywood and at the arrow theater in Santa Monica. Are they also looking to buy the arrow? Or Apparently just the Egyptian? not. Apparently okay. it's just the Egyptian. Um, and so the details as we understand them are that the American cinema tech would still be programming the Egyptian on weekends during the week. Netflix would be programming the Egyptian and First off, I don't know what this means for the for this story uh, aptly named Steven Spielberg Theater, the little black box theater inside the Egyptian, uh, given the whole Spielberg Netflix thing. It's hilarious that there's a Spielberg theater uh, at this theater that they just show all their like really bad horror movies in there. (laughs) Just as a little screw you. I I don't know what it means for programming there, but um, I feel like the the Los Angeles cinephile twitter like film twitter community is 100 percent opposed yeah. to this because they love the american cinematech rightly the american cinematech is yes, great it's, it's great uh and it's been something since I've, I've lived here 14 years and i've seen so many great things at the egyptian and the arrow few things are more enjoyable than doing a double or sometimes triple feature at the arrow or the egyptian yeah and just being like making a whole day of it and it's yeah. it's really enjoyable I, that's that's true but yeah and and both theaters are are great um as just as spaces especially the egyptian looks beautiful inside it's enormous yeah, they, it's an they enormous res- screen they renovated that right like the arrow still feels pretty old uh yeah so i i, I looked up the history of the egyptian uh, they renovated it in 98 and i think again they did something else in 2005 maybe to it uh and it's been which is when i moved here so it's been pretty much the same i think in the time that i moved here um but yeah the egyptian is also i in yeah didn't come up how this would affect the fact the the egyptian is a venue for both afi fest and the tcm film festival which is starting by the time you're hearing this the tcm festival is already over but it's starting in a few in a couple days Mm -hmm. uh or it's starting tomorrow from when we're recording this um 
Oh, also the other reason I'm in a good mood tonight is the the NHL playoffs started and the St. Louis Blues won their first game right. against the Winnipeg Jets in Winnipeg, which is a uh, a big deal. So uh, very happy about that. Anyway, so it seems like my guess and a lot of people's guess here is this is a way for Netflix to address the whole theatrical versus streaming thing. Yes. Like I, they have a yeah. place now where they can show their movies yeah. for whatever amount of time they want to before they before they debut on on Netflix streaming. Isn't it funny that eventually Netflix had to embrace brick and mortar? Yeah, just like there's, you know? I mean, you go to the Century City Mall and there's an Amazon store. Yeah. <laughs> it's so crazy. Um, but, hmm. uh, I, so you, uh, you, you specifically didn't want me to tell you the details of this until we started recording so you could react live. What is your reaction to this news story? My knee-jerk reaction is, is that, you know, a smaller independent thing is being purchased by a larger corporate thing, which instinctively I don't like. Uh Um, And regardless of what the corporate thing says, which is, no, 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 we would just program on the weeks uh, during the week and then Mm -hmm. American Cinema Tech can still do the weekends. They have no real incentive to keep that going. Yeah, that's that's true. You know, and so... Uh, if they find that, but then you also have to wonder, like, from Netflix's point of view, how profitable actually would showing Buster Scruggs on weekends, yeah, be? You know, like th- this might just be a prestige move for them. Yeah, and if that's the case, then I think th- that it's fine. I don't, but at the same time, like, Cinematech still shows stuff during the week. Uh, and sometimes Mm -hmm. that's the weekends tends to be when they go, (laughs) I'm say this, I'm saying this, you know, somewhat tongue in cheek when American cinema tech goes a bit more mainstream, uh, they do the more attention grabbing uh, things, but still, even then the attention grabbing things they do are great. Yeah. They recently did like, Oh, here's a, Lawrence of Arabia or like I saw, I saw a double feature of uh, like a, a Charles Lawton double feature on a Sunday. Okay. I saw uh, witness for the prosecution night of the hunter. Oh, that's and awesome. it's like, they recently did a whole day, like a full day of, they called it Boris and Bella. And it was just mm. Boris, Carlos and Bella. Oh, movies, right. And they showed like seven movies in a row or something. Yeah. That's I've never, the most I've ever seen at the Egyptian in a row is three. Or I, I guess I saw there was during noir city a few years ago, there was an Argentinian noir, mm. um, triple feature i guess yeah i guess it was three movies yeah, yeah it was a triple feature and so uh, i i could see that you know when you've got seven days to fill i could see you being a bit being willing to take a few more risks when those seven days are limited to two i could see you being yeah. much more willing to go I with mean, the more accessible stuff to be I, I, Again, I accessible is in quotes because it's it's not like it's Transformers or, or big blockbuster stuff. Yeah. It's but it's the it's the stuff that frankly you and I are more likely yeah. to have already seen at that point. And I will say just not to play. I guess I'm playing devil's advocate to the uh, to the cinephile film tour community, which I kind of love to do because mm-hmm. um, they all need to be deflated a little bit, <laughs> taken down a peg. But um, yeah, I'm certainly the, not in a panic yeah. about this. American Cinema Tech doesn't actually program seven days a week, except maybe occasionally when they've got something 
some sort of series going on or something. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the times, a couple of days a week, there um, people are four walling that theater for. Right. Uh, I've been as a film critic. I've been to the quote unquote premiere of a lot of super low budget indie movies because yeah. they four walled the 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 egyptian on a tuesday night or whatever mm-hmm. you know so there it's already like you're not actually losing a full five or four days right you know right but still they still do stuff on weeknights it's uh i i think that i'm trying to look on the bright side mm-hmm. which is that we still have the arrow and yeah. we still have weekends but like you're saying who knows how long that'll last right but the other bright side is that I've sent, I've had experiences like going to Sundance and seeing Tamara Jenkins private life and loving it and maybe partially kind of lamenting like, Oh, this might be the last time like anyone sees this on a big screen right. because Netflix picked it up. And obviously this doesn't help cinephiles all over the world, but at least Los Angeles people might have another chance to see, right. to see private life, to see something like land of steady habits. I never got a chance to see mm-hmm. on a big screen, like these smaller movies that Netflix acquires to have another chance to see them theatrically could be a good thing for Los Angeles. And it makes you wonder like what their, what their plan would be for Los Angeles theatrical distribution. Um, like you could see Roma at a few different theaters. You could see Buster Scruggs at a few different thing, theaters, yeah. but if they have their own, like maybe they pull them from all these other chains and That's the true. only way you can see them yeah. in theaters is at their theater. Cause they already have, they have a deal with IPIC. Right. Yeah, that's true. Where which I've never gone to. I've I heard there's it's like, a couple of them, aren't there? Yeah. There's, there's one, one in Westwood, which yeah. I drive past often cause I work in Beverly Hills and Westwood is right by there. Uh, and there's another I pick somewhere and yeah, they have a deal with Netflix yeah. that there are movies like, uh, I think like the Cloverfield paradox or whatever that was mm-hmm. called, like actually played theatrically at the Westwood I pick, which yeah. is like the only place you could see it if you wanted to. Um, so yeah, they've had stuff like that. And so yeah, maybe that would end, mm-hmm. uh, and it would just be the Egyptian, you know, Mondays through Thursdays or right. whatever. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I think I, I'm, to sum up, I think I'm cautious, yeah. but I'm not panicking. I'm wary, but I'm not panicking. I would say, yeah, it's it's not in it's not inherently bad. It's not a guarantee that it's going to be bad or go bad or anything like that. If it provides people with more of an opportunity to see movies in the theater that they might otherwise see right. uh, uh, on at home, then that's fine. But the cynic in me. Um, so I've been editing my book, uh, and it ends with a 20 page essay called the vulgarization of modern criticism. Right. And so I, I just, last night I was up very late editing that, looking for typos, making some wording changes and that sort of thing. And, uh, a big portion of it has to do with rotten tomatoes mm-hmm. and like Warner brothers purchase of that. And then also elsewhere years ago, right. Sony inventing a film critic, uh, so named David Manning so that they could have the quotes they wanted on their poster. Yeah. And so how did they survive that? Arguably they didn't, uh, yeah. they yeah, had I guess. to sell some of their stuff to, uh, Marvel, but, um, not sell, but they had to partner with Marvel. Yeah, I guess Sony's like, not doing great. Huh? It is not. Uh, men in black international. My, my bull, not the, it, it not might, the red. like they do well with, with games. They don't, they don't do great with movies. Okay. Um, 
but yeah, and so but so I, I what was I that? Know. I get we could do a whole episode. It would alienate almost all the listeners about like the studio lots. Yeah, because I could be, talk about them all day. You certainly so, could more than I could. But yeah. yes, so I mean the fact that the Sony lot is the old MGM lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems uh, it it seems weird going there. You know. Um, because the Sony lot is still beautiful and still old Hollywood, but the yeah. fact that it's being occupied by this <laughs> entity that isn't like at the forefront, you know, it's, it's weird. I was just there the other day though. Um, I'm not sure if you've been, cause I went to a Sony pictures classics press screening, mm-hmm. which is in the Thalberg building. Oh, have yeah, you been yeah. there? Yeah. It's, it's so great. It's a bit of history. Cause you go into the basement and there's just this row of little screening rooms and each one, they're so small that the door to the projection booth is next to the door to the screening. Yeah. So you walk down and it's just like booth A, room A, booth B, room B, mm-hmm. you know, and they're all, I'm not sure if they're original lettering or if they've gone in and done Art sure. Deco lettering sure. to make it seem more historic. But it does feel like, yeah, maybe I'm here to see a uh, not great movie directed yeah. by Ray Fiennes. Um, but I feel like this is a, like I'm in a museum mm-hmm. almost. And that's to their credit that they're at least trying to uh, not trying to over to update the lot or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, but uh, I forgot what I was saying. Oh, yeah. Sorry, so yeah, the, so I'm I'm. I think I'm at the moment in a more cynical mindset uh-huh. about studios. Um, and, and especially that idea of like, I don't know what you'd call it. Not necessarily a slippery slope, but just the, almost like, uh, you know, if you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to want some milk. Like you give it a studio five days, they'll want seven. Uh, and Netflix <laughs> at this point is just as much as has just as much a studio mentality as anything else. Um, and so right. I'm not freaked out about it. I'm, if it went the way I think it could, um, I'd be bummed. Yeah, certainly. Um, but yeah, there's yeah, still, I, I, there's still good movie going in, in Los Angeles, but that true, would be, but yeah, that it, would be a bummer. It's more of a reason to support things like the new Beverly. However yeah. you feel about Quentin, you know, yeah. um, the, uh, the, UCLA film and television archive that shows movies at the Billy Wilder theater. That's a great, they show great stuff all the time. Silent movie theaters closed right now, but that's going to open back up at some point. Right. I hope so. I mean, yeah. under new management, I'm sure. But uh, well, like, obviously, yeah. Cine family is uh, gone from the face of the earth, yeah. and rightfully so. But um, yeah, but I was going. I've been in Los Angeles now long enough. At this point, I was going to Cine. Uh, I was going to the Silent Movie Theater before it was mm-hmm. Cine Family. Um, uh, and yeah, so I've seen things like that come and go. You've also got. I would also recommend, even though I. Uh, maybe not practicing what I preach here because I don't go very much anymore, but the Echo Park Film Center, which is a uh, great resource for like independent filmmakers and they Mm -hmm. rent like equipment, they rent DVDs and stuff and then they also like sometimes throw up a projector and show uh, like experimental. I feel like I shouldn't use the word experimental because there are no... I feel like there are no experimental filmmakers who like being referred to as experimental filmmakers. So I shouldn't, whatever, like short form, non-narrative, you know, micro cinema type of things, whatever you want to call it. Who's got the time though for that? Um, uh, Yeah. I felt like there was something else I was going to say. Oh yeah. Selfishly. I really just hope that the Egyptian still is able to be used as a venue for TCM fest and AFI fest. Cause that's some of my favorite experiences there. Um, and I like slash hate 
that the Egyptian shares a courtyard with the pig and whistle, which is a bar mm-hmm. and grill that is a joke. It is. So it's, it's also historic like the Egyptian, but it's also, it's a terrible bar. The okay. food is awful. The service, they're rude. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be in business if it weren't an historic right. building that's located in the heart of Hollywood. And yet I have so many positive memories usually tied to one of these film festivals of like yeah. meeting friends, you know, last year, I ran into our friend Mariah, who had since moved away and is now back in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, she'll be back on the show soon. Um, at the Pick and Whistle, I ran into our friend Kyle from Nerdist. Mm-hmm. You know, like I have so many positive associations with the Egyptian and the Pick and Whistle being next to each other. Yeah, uh, that are tied to these film festivals. I hope. Uh, uh, I hope that still gets to be used. Yeah. But uh, let's, uh, we got a lot of episode to get to, so let's pay some bills. Got a long way to go and a short battery life to get there. Yeah, 45%. Right. Okay. Uh, so this episode. <laughs> Should I just be counting down as the episode goes? <laughs> it does. Did you ever see that wonderful Bill Burr clip of him in Philadelphia? It's, oh, my it's, God. It's super old now, but uh, it's oh my God. some of the best stand-up you'll ever see. It, but I also, I mean, yeah, I agree, but I also wonder, do you, is it esoteric? Like, do you have to be well-versed? in stand-up to understand why what he does there is so brilliant. I don't think so. I mean, okay. I, I, maybe, I don't know. Like I was going to say like, I saw it when I still lived in Chicago. So it's not like I was involved. Not that I was ever involved, but it's not like I was going to stand-up shows all the time, but by, but I've loved stand-up since the yeah. late eighties, since I was a kid, I thought yeah. it was amazing. So I guess probably better versed than most people. But at this point, what with honestly, things like Netflix just releasing a lot of stand-up specials. I could, I feel like people but, are maybe yeah. more casually aware of it, but certainly more aware. But of even it. that, like when you're watching a stand-up special on Netflix or on comedy central, or whatever, you know, that's, that's by design a receptive audience. Yes. Yes. So to see a stand-up not only do 15 minutes in front of a hostile audience, yeah. but be hilarious and antagonistic to the hostile audience and getting and sustain it for 15 full minutes and getting part of the audience on his side, yeah. but not all at the same time. Yeah. It's, uh, it is truly brilliant. It's, it is an achievement. And it's one of those things that by when that popped up, I think I had been listening to never not funny for a little while at that point. And I remember Paula Tompkins saying that like Philadelphia just has like some of the worst audiences. Yeah. And so for him to go there and not be scared off and yeah. just like go at them it is just hilarious. Which is, what's funny is actually, because that yeah if you want to youtube it's bilber anthony and opie uh, opie Opie and anthony Anthony. that's right yeah but what's funny is it's not actually in it's technically in south jersey oh okay but it's a philadelphia crowd if i remember correctly because south jersey is essentially like a Mm. suburb of like gary indiana is a suburb of chicago in a way way. okay like yeah so i I think it's actually not even in philadelphia but he's doing all philadelphia material uh, and it's so yeah it's so great all right let's pay some bills okay this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film, whether it's a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece, a movie, a movie you've been dying to see or one you've never heard of before, there are always 30 different films to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you'll never spend more time looking for something great to watch than actually watching something great. It's like your own personal film festival streaming anytime, anywhere. Uh, so Mubi is launching an ongoing series called Adaptation, uh, 
They're kicking it off with Miguel Gomez's three-part adaptation of Arabian Nights. These films were produced in 2015 and are all available right now on Mubi, taking place in modern-day Portugal, but with the fantastical mysticism encroaching on their on our characters' lives. The Arabian Nights films are a wonderful example of creative adaptation and magical realism, which is a favorite thing of mine. Uh, so try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Battleship. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Battleship for a whole month of great cinema for free. And I want to tell you about TweakedAudio.com. TweakedAudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. And what's more, Tyler and I use them each and every day. I want to tell you about what I was listening to this morning, Tyler. Okay. Normally, I like to promote something. Mm-hmm. But here, I want to tell you something that I listened to that I hated. Okay. Because I want to tell you about the Twitter response that I got. Oh. <laughs> um, right. I've never liked rapper Lil Uzi Vert. Never liked him. Never liked the sort of emo rap thing. I in already general. do not like this yeah. person. Um, but he had he put out a couple of new songs. Um, one called Sanguine Paradise that actually isn't bad, and then one called That's a Rack that I was listening to, and I was like, okay, this is okay. And then there are some very bracingly transphobic lyrics in the song. So is, that's okay. That's a rack. Like spell it. R A C K. That's R- okay. a rack. Not not like I R A Q. Like <laughs> oh, that's right, no. sorry. That's a rack. No, that's but, you know yeah. how it is. Okay, no, I got so it. I, I tweeted something about how I've never liked him, but I really don't like him after that. And I got a bunch of people who don't follow me who clearly just like were searching for little Uzi Vert tweets. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tweeting at me. So one's like. One that got a, a His bunch name of, sounds like like if, like a, a longer name was on a sign, but some of the letters burned yeah, out. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it what it sounds yeah. like. Um, so I got told, "Bro, you a folk? You, sorry, bro, you a fuckhead?" That's one. Okay, this I guy, got, this guy's got your number. I got called a nerd. I got called <laughs> sensitive. <laughs> this person said, "Nobody fucking cares. Stay listening to your lyrical spiritual logic," which I don't even know what that means. Is he saying that I like the rapper logic, which is? Maybe even more offensive to me than the transphobic lyrics, mm. the idea that I like. One person said, this will uh, tell you what I'm getting at. One person said, he does not suck. You're like 50. Goodbye. <laughs> um, uh, bah, 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 bah. Okay, but here's the one that cracked me up. Okay. Is this person said, you some clown head ass. You look 35. <laughs> Go to your fucking office and rethink this, bud. And I was, re- I was sitting in my <laughs> office. That was me. I, I was just, you know. <laughs> I was sitting in my office reading this tweet at the age of 36. Yeah. And being like, yeah, I, I think I'm okay with this. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, this is not a, I'm a, like, yeah. So apparently I look at you younger than I am. Although this other lady said that I look 50. Uh, but, uh, um, uh, but also the idea that my having an office is an insult, um, is, uh, it's, I feel like it should like tear at the punk rock part of me. Who's like, Oh, you are a sellout. And it's like, no, I'm sitting in my fucking no, office. Yeah. I'm Fuck someone, you. I'm someone who <laughs> likes nice weekends away. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there's, uh, and that's not a, not a terrible thing. So uh, anyway, Lil Uzi Vert sucks is my point. He's real, transphobic real and quick. his followers are stupid and have nothing better to do than Google or then search by his name and then called me a clown head ass. <laughs> a clown 
Is it clown head ass or is it clown head ass? Okay, got it. (laughs) Like he couldn't decide which one, so he decided to go with all of them. So anyway, that's what I was listening to my tweetdaddy.com earbuds. It sounded great, despite the fact that the music itself is is dreadful. Um, It was crystal clear quality. I could hear those transphobic lyrics perfectly uh and those earbuds are available to you at a low low price at tweakedaudio.com but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout you get one third off that low low price and no shipping charges so go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension real quick yeah. uh speaking of uh, comments uh and someone calling you a nerd <laughs> um so years ago i put out a series of videos uh, just three of them um about some of my favorite movie characters. They're like sort of little video essays. So one was about Don Logan from Sexy Beast. One was about um, Libby Holden from Primary Colors. And the other was about Klaus von Bülow as a character in uh, Reversal of Fortune. I don't remember, mostly people really uh, liked it. It turns out Klaus von Bülow's son watched uh, that one, um, which is fascinating. And, uh, but there was there was one person who was there was very they were very complimentary and they said that uh, that I have a very good voice. Okay, hey, great, yeah. And then someone responded to that. They didn't say a general comment. They responded to this person's comment about my voice, and they responded with, "Nah, he's a nerd." <laughs> <laughs> it's like I don't really see how one. It's a weird, it's, I it's don't like, it's, see. Okay. It's like a, one of those Lewis black. If it weren't for my horse, <laughs> I wouldn't spend that year in college. Like what do these have to do with each other? Why does one but, negate the uh, other? 40%. Okay. Um, how did this person who thinks your voice is nerdy come to watch your video about Klaus von Bülow as a character or Libby Holden or <laughs> Don Logan? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, maybe yeah. it's a sexy beast fan. Maybe. But even then, Nah, he's a nerd. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, okay. All right. So, uh, let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Uh, astute longtime listeners will have already figured out because they've glanced down at their MP3 players or their uh, smartphones and seen the episode description, which includes the title and the number of the episode. They've seen that this is episode 630, which is an episode of Battleship Pretension in which the number is divisible by 10 evenly but not by 50 evenly mm-hmm. which means of course as it has always meant since the dawn of time that this is a profile episode so uh in keeping with our now pretty established tradition of turning these profile episodes into tribute episodes to the people we've recently lost mm-hmm. we decided to devote an episode to the films of penny marshall director because there's a lot you know we could talk about penny marshall as an actress yeah uh, and that would be a whole other thing Um, but we specifically want to focus on her as a director, Mm -hmm. um, which is, uh, uh, on the one hand, she didn't have as prolific a career as I really like looking. I I watched all of her films. Uh, it was really easy. (laughs) Um, she didn't have that as many films as a director as I realized, but she does have a, a a couple of huge. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I, cause I was thinking about that. Like, why did I think she was more, your word is prolific. Like why, why did I think that she was more prolific than 
than she actually was. And I think it had to do with how old you and I were when she was like really mm-hmm. sort of, cr- for lack of a better term, cranking them out. Yeah. Like she would do one every two or three. Yeah. About every two years for a while there. And the ones that she put out were very much on my radar. Yeah. Uh, when I was younger. And so in the same way that, uh, I don't know, like when you, I don't know, just like when you think back to when you're remembering that era and you just realize, Oh wow. Penny Marshall just kind of loomed large over that. And then you just don't really think about it anymore. And for me, it's the, I, I guess I just sort of assumed that I started watching different movies, but she just continued making movies. Right. Uh, and then come to find out, no, the last, the last full movie she made was almost 20 years ago at this point. She did a lot of television. Um, which was what? Writing uh, Cars of Boys? Is that the last Yeah, one? that's, that's 2001. Wow. Was that long ago? Yeah. All right. Um, well, we'll get to that. I later. guess she she did a TV movie called Women Without Men in 2010. Okay, but it doesn't even have a graphic here, so I'm not really sure what it's about. But we're going to go chronologically, which means we're going to start with 1986's Jumpin' Jack Flash, okay. which I had never really. I, I remember as a kid, it would be on TV sometimes. So I'd mm-hmm. seen. I definitely remember the part where. Have you seen it? I have not seen. Well, okay. okay. I saw it when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, I remember nothing about it. So there's a part where she's trying to call for help in a phone booth mm. and the bad guys just like hook the phone booth to like a tow truck. And then she's like being dragged through the streets of New York inside okay. a phone booth. That's what I remember from being it from a kid. Okay. As a, uh, be watching it as a kid. Excuse me. Uh, watching it now. It's, um, it's an odd debut. It film. is not a, it is not a liked film. For yeah. The most and part. It's not very good. It's got a great cast some of whom would show up in further Penny Marshall films like John Lovitz, um, nice. uh, in a, in a very small role, but it's also awkward cause it's like an early internet movie. Oh, interesting. Because okay. she, uh, well, uh, that's the other thing. It's a, it's a Penny, it's Penny Marshall's debut, but it's also very clearly a Whoopi Goldberg vehicle. Yes. At the time, Whoopi Goldberg was a hot young comedian. Mm-hmm. And so they're, clearly trying to to model a film around her just like it was only two a year or two before that beverly hills cop had happened you know i I feel like they wanted this to be Whoopi goldberg's beverly hills cop in a way um and so there's a lot of just Whoopi goldberg riffing yeah and it and also it's awkward because Whoopi goldberg plays uh she works for a bank and her job is to be on a computer all day talking to chatting with IMing with and in, in modern parlance um, clients all over the world and handling their mm. accounts or whatever. And then via this computer, a, an agent who's in trouble in a foreign nation somewhere. Um, this is the only, somehow the only safe way that he can communicate. So he enlists her mm. to help him because he's been double crossed, so she she needs to try and find sympathetic CIA agents or something in New York who yeah. can send for him because the agency can't be trusted or something like that. Um, and basically, what I've just described is only part of the story. It's an incredibly plot heavy movie. Yeah, and that having watched her whole filmography now, that was not her strong suit. Right. The sort of 
hangout scenes, that's what she was really great at. Yeah. So like there are parts when it's like Whoopi Goldberg and, and, uh, uh, John Lovitz and I think Carol Kane is like when, when it's just a team of yeah. these like computer nerds in this like uh, windowless bullpen office at the bank just hanging out like there's some fun times in comedy there but so there's so much plot that has to get across yeah and there's also I, I feel like I, I don't know if the, I don't really I'm not really familiar that much with Whoopi Goldberg's stand up so there's all, but so I'm not sure if this is a Whoopi Goldberg thing or if there is if this is as our friend Josh talked about last week a specific sort of 80s type of studio comedy thing mm. where she's constantly talking to herself she's uh, constantly commenting on what's happening in the movie yeah and it feels I'm not sure I, I I don't know I don't know if it felt more natural at the time it feels so unnatural now it's really glaring mm. it makes the movie. Uh, impossible to actually get into in any way because yeah. it's so not into itself. It's constantly commenting on itself. Uh, and, and uh, I mean, I'm sure that's, I don't know if that was part of her standup, but I could definitely see it being a situation where they're like, we have a scene where the character is walking. Well, we can't have that. So whoopee, come up with something like I, that. <laughs> yeah. I could see. Yeah. Um, uh, that reminds me of a story, a story I heard about, uh, the, the uh, do you remember the Comedy Central program Mind of Mencia? Yeah, when Carlos Mencia had his own mm-hmm. show. That there, I heard there was a note from the network to the writers that the show is called Mind of Mencia, so we need to have Carlos Mencia talking to the camera more often. <laughs> and if you watch the show, you see that happen, <laughs> which I have suffered through a few episodes. He's constantly like turning and addressing the camera because that was. It's it makes it even more awkward, and that kind of feels like that sort of thing here. It's like mm-hmm. we want we want the Whoopi Goldberg personality, so we'll yeah. just have her have a running commentary on commentary on everything that's happening yeah. in the movie at all times. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's not great, but there are moments where you see that Penny Marshall has an eye for this sort of loose ensemble moments which which will come to defend uh, come to define rather a lot of her career yeah uh okay so next up um is big yeah and i think it's safe to say that if it weren't for big i mean i'm sure i'm sure she probably would have continued to direct but i don't think i don't think her profile as a director would be quite so high yeah um and I'm, i'm glad i rewatched I rewatched Big and A League of Their Own, which I didn't. I had seen them before, mm-hmm. and so sometimes when we do these profiles, I'm doing research. I'm more focused on watching the stuff I hadn't watched. Sure, but I'm glad I took time because of her smaller filmography to rewatch Big and A League of Their Own, which are clearly her two best movies. Uh, to me, I'm not sure if you agree, okay. but I would say they're her two best movies. And if you would ask me before rewatching which one I preferred, I would have told you A League of Their Own was my favorite Penny. Marshall oh, interesting. Movie. Okay, and I still think there's. There's so many things that are so great about a league of their own. Mm-hmm. Um, I think emotionally it connects more. We'll get to that more. But as a filmmaker, mm-hmm. I don't think she ever did as well as she did in Big again. Because what Big has that so few of her movies have going forward is a really strong visual sense. Yeah, there I was are, gonna. I was going to mention that not necessarily in a, in a wholly negative way but 
going into this, I was like, what the hell am I going to say about Penny Marshall? Because, and not to speak ill of her, but I always thought of her as something of a journeyman. Um, not to necessarily go back to that term, which people got mad at us about, but you know what I mean? It like, was like a decade ago, but yeah. Yeah, but yeah, boy. Uh, <laughs> you know, when I think of auteurs and such, I tend to think first and foremost of a visual sense or a general sense of tone. And looking at those two things, it's like visual sense, not really. Tone, yes. Yeah. And so I I think that's. But I do think that Big is a good looking movie for the most part. Yeah. And I'll get back to that. But I do. I want to say like, well, usually when we do these profiles, we sort of sort of tend to get to what was what made this person on a tour. And I think the thing that I'm really coming away with is that Penny Marshall shown in the moments that were about uh, very funny in a very human way connections between characters that weren't about the plot. She was not a, she was not a, a someone who kept the plot. I, I don't think her, the right. plot was very important to her. It was more about yeah. these connections and these moments. But yeah, Big does have, it has um, three shots that I'll point out uh, that I think are the three best shots in the ent- entire history of her filmography. One is um, Tom Hanks and Robert Loggia on the giant sure. keyboard. It's a, it's on the one hand, it's a very simple shot, mm-hmm. but it uses the sort of one eight five, the fullness of the one eight five uh, frame, um, and the exact depth and lens is just, it's just perfect to capture everything that needs to be going on. Uh, at the end, when he finds the what is it, Zoltar. Yeah, uh, yeah, that sounds right. When he when he has to drive upstate to find, and he's at this sort of like abandoned fairground on yeah. like a sort of boardwalk. That's a big like swooping, curving boardwalk. Yeah. The that's a very beautiful shot. And then the actual what I think is the most stunning, beautiful shot in all of her uh, filmography. And now I'm forgetting the name. I can picture her, Elizabeth Perkins. Perkins, yeah. yes. Tom Hanks and Elizabeth Perkins jumping on the trampoline mm-hmm. and then it cuts to outside the building and yeah. you're seeing them on like the 12th floor or whatever yeah. bouncing come down at night in this super well-lit apartment in the New York City darkness yeah. bouncing up and down. There's so much about that, uh, uh, about like how his um, boyish sense of joy and freedom has been transported in its own way into this larger, yeah. uh, adult, uh, landscape. Um, and, and how the fact that the world outside doesn't care that they're having fun or uh-huh. I know that I know the shot you're talking about and I, it, it is memorable and I've had the thought, yes, it doesn't care. People are just walking by while they're having fun. Because it's cameras high up. Right, you yeah. assume they're walking by on yeah. the street below somewhere. But I can also imagine, because anytime we cut to outside a window, sorry, I, I'm doing, I'm going to do this lecture in uh-huh. a few weeks about film analysis. So I'm trying to think of like just a few basic ones that just sort of freebies. Like if there's an American flag in the shot, they're saying something. Uh-huh. Uh, but the other one was like, anytime we go from inside to outside looking in, pay close attention to that because that is some level of commentary. And the, and so it could be that nobody really 
cares? They've all got their heads down. They're all doing that. But I can also imagine someone, I imagine like a businessman, uh-huh. you know, looking up and being like, oh, that sure. looks like so much fun. Yeah. I yeah. wish I could do that. Yeah, that's true. Which is very much Elizabeth Perkins attitude in that moment. Yeah. Um, although I'll say as a, I have a very different reaction. I remember when big came out, my mom was like <laughs> similar to, again, going back to Josh's episode last week. And he was talking about not wanting to see the movie. I can't remember which movie it was and then loving it. But then his parents wanted to leave and he was like, okay. Oh yeah. Uh, I did a thing where my mom had seen big, I think in the theater or whatever. And when it came out on VHS, she was like, you will like this movie. And I was like, no, it looks stupid. I don't want to watch it. <laughs> uh, and then I loved it, of yeah. course. Um, but one thing I didn't think of then that I absolutely thought of now as a 36 year old man is like, Oh, that's so dangerous. It's a sure trampoline, is. big open window. Like, you know, you bounce wrong one way and you're pitching out the 12th floor. Like <laughs> you're dead. Yeah. That's, I couldn't stop thinking about it, like, this is too dangerous. They need to like, at least put those like <laughs> nets up that some trampolines have, but what a way to go, David. That's what I said. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and so I, I want to go back to this idea of, of tone. Um, and that, she first off, I feel like she's very good at putting her actors at ease. Everyone feels yeah. very naturalistic, even though I don't consider her maybe maybe a little bit in awakenings, but for the most part, I don't think of her as a realistic filmmaker. Um, her movies feel like movies, okay? Yeah, yeah, and that's a, and that's a plus. Yeah, a that's, not, time, that's yeah. not a bad thing at all. Um, and so within that there's always a danger that the, the actors are going to give slightly heightened performances, but they actually give surprisingly naturalistic performances. And I think big, especially, um, where you have, when you have characters like, uh, John Hurd and just these corporate types who are meant to be, who are meant to represent something. Um, I think, I do think the script is very good as well. So I think that's helping them, but I think she realized that, well, this, in this case, like this story is outlandish enough that will do the weird work for us. Um, so let's just be people. That's it. That's all you're going to do. You're just going to be people. And then like Tom Hanks, you've got a lot of the heavy lifting here. Um, and we need to see a, a change in you. But, uh, you know, when I think of, of, uh, Josh's friend and the role mm-hmm. that he plays. Yeah. And I think he's, he feels very much like a kid in this state, like where he's, he's certainly not a grown up yet, but he's right on the cusp and probably wanting to be seen as a grown yeah. up. And so I feel like tonally, like a real ease. Her movies are, again, this could sound negative by saying that, like, she's not a realistic filmmaker. Her movies feel like movies. I would also say that her movies are very easy to watch. Mm. Um, and I do think that in certain movie circles, people consider that somehow a bad thing. They're like, no, no, movies should hurt. Um, (laughs) and her movies are, are, I won't say they're necessarily light, but they are very easy to watch. She wants us to enjoy it. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Um, okay. Last thing I wanted to point out about big, I want to get your opinion. Okay. Because, I've heard this criticism uh, as a criticism before, and I definitely noticed it this time. The kid's supposed to be 13. Mm-hmm. And Tom Hanks, I feel like, is acting more like a 10-year-old than a 13-year-old. This was my, uh, this was my complaint about Shazam as well. Um, oh, okay. I think the adult is playing a little too young. But is that perhaps a comment on adolescence and the idea that a 13-year-old is at a point where he's 
trying to act like, more like an adult than he actually mm-hmm. is. And somehow him becoming big or whatever allows him to let go of that and allows him to hang on to childhood longer. I did think that, yeah, uh, I, and this, and I said this in my, in my Shazam review that because the kid actually seems pretty reserved mm-hmm. for the most part, you know, he still like hangs out with his friends and stuff, but, he, but his energy level is not that high up. But then when he becomes an adult, but still with the kid mentality, I'm sure there is a certain feeling of liberation there. And this feeling of like, I don't have any to prove anybody, anything to prove to anybody. Yeah. I can go buy beer. I can uh, go on whatever rides I want to go on. Uh, and so I, I, I can see that. I don't know if it quite covers it, Okay, but I, I, I can see it. Uh, but are you, uh, so I feel like big is her best film. You seem like you are not. Well, it's sure just, I didn't that. want to say it automatically. My, okay. I, I, I am, in, I'm inclined to say the same, but, uh, but yeah, I definitely, cause just today I watched writing in cars with boys for the first time. And, uh, and I definitely have some thoughts on it. You think that might be her best film? <laughs> not necessarily, okay. but I, but it, I'd be surprised. It's it, not it's not a well liked film for the most part, but there's a lot that I actually liked about it, but we'll get to that later. I yeah. do think it's probably, I think how we're teasing writing in cars with yeah. points. <laughs> uh, but yeah, let's move on. I, to- I looking at the filmography just right now. Yeah. I would, I'd be inclined to say that it's probably big. All right. So moving on to 1990s awakenings, which yes. I had not seen before. Uh, and, and I, and I watched, um, again, there are, there are there are definitely moments in which it's more of an ensemble mm-hmm. dramedy that I liked. Yeah, but I also very much see the formula. Sure, I very much see it's very flowers for Algernon. Yeah, and it, but it's also very yes, it is that uh, in terms of Robin Williams filmography, if we were to do a Robin Williams mm-hmm. uh, profile, we would see how he's drawn to certain characters that aren't I don't think are as complex as maybe he would like to think they are he thinks I I feel like he's as a comedian I think he's happy to dig into this to more pathos yeah but I think the character whose whose name I forget now uh, uh, Malcolm Sayer yeah is um, it, it's so similar to the characters he would play in patch Adams and goodwill hunting in some ways right. as well. Um, you know, the, the guy who just wants to help people, but maybe needs a little bit of help himself. Sure. <laughs> you know, uh, although I love, um, Julie Kavner. Is that the romantic oh, yeah. interest uh, yeah. in this? She's great. And I think, I mean, Robin Williams is doing a, a good job, but I, I always, I always liked him more playing bad guys than good guys. Yeah. And it's, he, he had, a very specific way of speaking mm-hmm. uh, his, his, when he's not yelling, like just his voice. When you think of him in like one hour photo or, or insomnia, yeah. uh, his voice could be super creepy. Yeah. But if you, if you just dial it in a different direction, it's just like, this is so saccharine. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's his performance in this is certainly, I've, I, I've seen the film a, a few times. Okay. Um, I don't, I loved it when I first saw it because I was honestly younger and then I got older and I saw more, I'd seen more movies like it that some yeah. that were better, some that were worse. Well, and so I definitely think it's a huge, it's a huge step up from patch Adams. Um, but I also think that I think his, 
performances sort of nicely restrained in Goodwill Hunting, whereas this is somewhere in between the two. Um, I feel like we're doing this profile and we're doing is talking about what we don't like, but well, um, and it's worth noting that we're one, we're talking about the actors here. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's probably what we're going to do first. Cause I think that she having been an actress first, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's something she is really dialed into is the performances. But I think there are also some very superficial screenplay problems with sure. Awakenings. I've actually thought of you while I was watching it for the first time because um, John Hurd's character reminded me very much of, and I forget the actor's name, but the warden from Shawshank Redemption. Bob Gunton. Bob Gunton. Yeah. Who, the character just seems to exist just to antagonize the protagonist. Oh, yeah. He doesn't, like, I don't really understand where he's coming from. I don't get a sense of him other than his role in every scene is to say no. Yeah. <laughs> and I found that kind of exhausting that I wish, I wish I had more of a sense of what John Hurd's character valued yeah. at, or what brought him, drew, drew him to being a doctor, yeah. why he is caring after mentally ill patients, yeah. anything like that. Well, it's interesting because in an early draft of this, this, the draft you're seeing is a better version because in the first draft, the character only ever says harumph and that's it. <laughs> Yeah, that was a joke. No, I anyway. believe you. Okay, no, I believe that's true. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's but, that's a very common thing for Robin Williams is like having the naysayers, whether it be Dead Poet Society or Awakenings oh, right. or yeah, or Goodwill Hunting or Patch Adams. Like, it's just he's the free spirit, which means you need to pe- show people that are not so free. Uh, but okay, so we've gotten complaints out of the way. There are things about Awakenings that are joyous, mm. especially once. Because Robert De Niro's character is the first to undergo the treatment that sort of brings him out of this uh, this catatonic super he's been in for mm-hmm. decades, and once the other patients start coming out, there are just great like party scenes yeah. that are like they're goofy and fun and funny, yeah. you know, and they go dancing and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But also, there's such a humanistic eye toward what these people have been through and the yeah. fact that you know it's tragic in some ways they're kind of like time travelers Mm. because they haven't really been aware of the world for for years and years um and there's there's such a great i i think penny marshall was good at a sort of uh a bittersweetness i guess Mm -hmm. um there's and it is like you were saying earlier it's not super realistic it is very movie-ish but I like movies. I'm okay with things being yeah. movie-ish. Um, and uh, these ensemble scenes of them just like having lunch in the cafeteria or going on outings or especially when, yeah, when they go to like the dance hall or whatever, yeah. it's, it's my favorite part. Uh, there's so much joy in those group scenes. And I feel like you can really tell that that's where Penny Marshall was in her element. And uh, speaking of elements, I will say that uh, looking at Big and Awakenings and then League of Their Own and then uh, other movies that we'll we'll get to, um, like, it's... On the surface, I find myself thinking, like, why on earth would you tap the director of Big to make Awakenings? Awakenings is based on a true story. It's based on a book. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a bit more adult in its sensibilities. And it's like, yeah, but you're also getting a bunch of people who are in a state of mental arrested development and they are still like children, you know, in adult bodies, you know? Um, but this idea of someone, uh, seeing 
stepping into a world that they are completely unfamiliar with and then having to make a go of it. Um, that is something, especially if they're young, uh, that is something that you, that is common to a number of her movies, including a league of their own, um, where you have these small town, uh, you know, country girls suddenly thrown into the spotlight and having to figure out what to do about that. Um, and so awakenings just, characters having to figure out the rules like the new uh, rules uh-huh. that aren't necessarily new they're new to them and so it's it's appropriate that her films are so are comedy but also drama mm-hmm. because there is drama to be mined from figuring out the new rules, but yeah. there is also tremendous comedy be, to be mined from that and I think the reason the comedy works and this will work as a transition from awakenings to a league of their own is that uh, and I keep coming back to this word ensemble because I think I think that's where she shined. But even in an ensemble, she doesn't lose sight or let us lose sight of the individuality of the characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's true. There are a number of patients you really get to know. Yeah. There are some who are just background. Like, I don't know if you uh, uh, visit Pastori. Big Pussy Malanga. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is one of the patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think he actually has any lines, but uh, it was very funny to me to see him. Like, he only shows uh, up uh, in Riding in Cars with Boys singing oh, uh, Dominic the Donkey. Oh, that's right. That's yeah, him. That's him. Oh, I forgot that was him. Um, all right. Well, look, like we said, look, hold your horses. We, we all know. get to Riding in Cars <laughs> exactly. with Boys. Yeah. This is the, like, de- the destination is worth the journey. This is like when you go to see Rick Springfield in concert and every few songs he plays the opening bars of Jesse's Girl. <laughs> like, and then like go. goes into something else. The only reason any of us would be here. <laughs> yeah. Which I shouldn't make fun because I've seen Rick Springfield in concert twice and he's a blast. I'm but sure. he definitely does that. Yeah. But Rick Springfield's a showman. If you get a chance to see Rick Springfield in concert, take it. It's so much fun. Okay. Anyway, that's not the point. Uh, a League of Their Own. A League of Their Own is another movie that has a huge ensemble cast. And yet there are so many who are memorable characters. It's mm-hmm. not just Gina Davis, Lori Petty and the rest. Yeah. You know, you've got obviously Madonna and, and Rosie O'Donnell. You've got other actresses whose names I don't yeah. know, but, uh, the, the characters are very specifically drawn. Yeah. Uh, would you say again, it's, it's, this is one of those things where, Penny Marshall was such a main, had such a mainstream sensibility that so many things that on this show we often speak of in the pejorative, I feel like they, she does them all right. So I would say that she's somebody who often deals at least at first in archetypes, you know, the, the characters in a league of their own are very archetypical in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, but then I think the, I think she wor- then works with the actors to really give them a specificity yeah. to, you know, like the, the character that Lori Petty plays, um, which is the scrappy little sister. Yeah. You know that we've seen that kind of thing before, but there's just something about, I feel like the character is remarkably vulnerable and that's a function of Lori Petty, but also yeah. the, really playing up the scrappy part and that she is able to do this, but she is, she actually does feel a sense of inferiority. It's not that yeah. everyone sees her as inferior, but she knows, no, she actually does kind of see herself that way. And that's the kind of specificity that can come, come about in the performance, even if it's not in the writing. Yeah, I definitely think this is, I shouldn't say definitely, because I don't like to speak in definites, but I, off the top of my head, I think this is Lori Petty's best performance. Mm-hmm. Do you think so? 
Uh, I don't know. I, I haven't. I didn't see her. She was on Orange Is the New Black uh, oh, okay. uh, a year or two ago. I, I bet she's good in that. Uh, yeah, I didn't see her in that. But um, uh, yeah, but yeah, you're right. She's invested. The the actors are invested. Obviously, you've got Gina Davis, who's great, mm-hmm. um, and Laurie Petty, but also Penny Marshall being invested in their relationship. I believe that those two are sisters, even though they don't. Yeah, off the page or off the screen, they wouldn't seem like yeah. sisters. But I believe that they're sisters, and I believe they're dynamic. Um, there, there's just an almost verbal, uh, sorry, a, a nonverbal shorthand, and it, this is the case with any, whether it be romantic or otherwise, any kind of on-screen chemistry. There has to just be the way they share looks. I remember years ago. Uh, you and I were hanging out with friend of the show, Ed Salazar, and we were sitting at a table outside of that, the bar on, what is it? Vermont yeah, or Hill public house. Yeah. 1739 public house is the official name okay. of that bar. Yes. Uh, and so we were hanging out and Pat Healy sat down and uh-huh. we had not met him yet. This was oh. a long time ago. Okay. So he sat down cause he knew Ed and the minute he sat down, I looked at you and you looked at me and we're like, well, we got to get this guy, okay. <laughs> you know, and just like, like, okay, let's, let's start, oh, let's start that. working on him. And, uh, and it turned out and Ed spoke very highly of us, which was nice. And, and I think it, yeah. by this time, Josh had mentioned to us to, to Pat, but we'd not actually okay. met him yet. And true? so like the way that we, the way that we just like immediately glanced at each other and it was all business in that moment. Uh, yeah. like that's the kind it's, we'd known each other yeah. for a long time and we'd been co-hosts for a long time right. and we're shameless opportunists. <laughs> and so there's that as well. Yeah. And like, I, I remember that moment because it's just like, it's a moment of it's we are locked into one another. I could have sworn we met Pat for the first time at Josh's birthday party at the ice cream, at we, to the ice cream. Place. Uh, we, we might have met him for like two seconds. I know he was there. Yeah. Um, and I do remember, and I, I seem to recall him being there and I think Josh said, Hey, those like, he might've introduced us, but I don't we didn't think really Pat, meet until we didn't really meet. Okay. And yeah, we didn't have an opportunity to talk cause I think Pat was leaving okay. uh, Josh's thing. But yeah, it's like, Oh, we're all sitting at a table now and now we're shaking hands, actually really being introduced. And yeah. now we're talking about movies huh. and it felt like, you know, and Hey, you know what? The rest is history. We should have Ed back. Sure. It's fine with me. Yeah. <laughs> he's like the missing link in this story where yeah. he's been on the show once. Well, more than that, if you count the live, the live shows, shows yeah. to do. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, that's a good idea. All right. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, a league of their own. We haven't talked about Tom Hanks uh, at all, but I also yeah. wanted to say in terms of it's not because yeah, the main duo is Gina Davis and Laurie Petty, but mm-hmm. you've also got Madonna and Rosie O'Donnell. Yeah who are also a great comic duo in like mm-hmm. a, almost an old fashioned, like Abbott and Costello type. Very sense, much so in the sense that they're like, on one hand, they're two very different mm-hmm. people, but also you see what they have in common, the sort of like brusqueness yeah. that they have in common. But Madonna's character is very, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Uh, she's very forward with men, yeah. I guess. Um, she kind of, and again, I'm using this term because of the archetype a- a aspect of it. She's like a vixen, you know, right, right. Uh, that, and she, she plays that up. Right. And Rosie O'Donnell's character is the opposite of that. Yeah. Uh, and, and yet, um, they compliment each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I actually believe that they're friends. I don't know if Rosie O'Donnell and Madonna are friends in real life, Yeah, but I believe that they're friends. Yeah. Um, even though I think within rewatching it within the story of the movie, they were only supposed to have met. 
shortly beforehand. Is that right? Uh, I don't remember. I, I always okay. thought of them as long-term friends, yeah. but maybe, maybe that's not the case. Um, that's a great ensemble and a great ensemble of genuinely strong characters. Um, like the fact that the fact that Tom Hanks, I mean, who was by this time a big star. I mean, Gina Davis, she was a star too. Don't get me wrong. Um, but that the two hander element is still Gina Davis and and Laurie Petty and Tom Hanks, like giving very solid support, but he's not allowed to steal the movie as he could have not merely because of who he is, but also the type of character that he plays. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so this cast just... Um, and I love John Lovitz in it as well. you got John well. Lovitz, you got David Shatharn, you've got Bill Pullman near mm-hmm. the end, which I had forgotten about. Uh, the late Don Davis yeah, um, is in it. Uh, Tay Leone has a small part in it. Mm. She's like, well, not even a small part, she's part of the ensemble because she okay, wasn't yeah. famous yet. But she's like in the whole movie and I kept pointing out watching it with Natalie again. I was like, oh, Tay Leone is in this. She's yeah. like all over this movie, but she like doesn't have anything. But the one... Uh, the actress I really wanted to single out was Anne Ramsey. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, cause she has my, uh, this is my wife loves this line from the movie so much that it's become one of my favorite lines, which is I think Gina Davis and I think Laura Petty are in the middle of a fight at the, like the shared, shared house they mm-hmm. have. And Anne, Anne Ramsey's character doesn't know this is coming. This is going on. Yeah. And she just like walks into the room and she goes, has anyone seen my new red hat? <laughs> And Gina Davis goes, Oh, piss on your hat. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but that's a, uh, yeah, that's my wife's favorite line and has become kind of my favorite line because of that. My favorite line, but for reasons that are just for me, uh, is when, um, John Lovitz is trying to recruit them. And at one point, uh, he's surrounded by chickens and he goes, get these wild animals away from me. <laughs> <laughs> In that wonderful John Lovitz way. Oh, you know, we didn't, uh, I mean, we talked about, sort of visually striking moments um in big this one doesn't have as many but uh i have to look up the actress's name um megan cavanaugh who plays marla mm-hmm. the, the sort oh, yeah. of bigger yeah. uh tomboyish girl when they go with john lovitz to like her tryout or whatever mm-hmm. it's pouring rain and so she is hitting baseballs inside an auditorium. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. And so you keep like cutting to the outside of it, like pouring rain and she's hitting baseballs through the window and they mm-hmm. keep coming out the windows. Uh, that's a very memorable visual yeah. moment there. Uh, okay. So what's next? Oh, okay. So a what, what is percentage great, are we oh, at? you know what? A couple other things I wanted to say about League of Their Own in terms of, Oh, sorry. We're at 22%. Oh boy. <laughs> fuck. Um, uh, fuck. All right. Um, couple other things I wanted to say about League of Their Own. The ending, the epilogue goes on forever, yeah. and it's not a complaint, except that I like ran out of tissues because it's, <laughs> sure. it's so emotional and it just keeps going. Yeah. Um, and there was something else I was going to say that I've now forgotten. Ah, oh, damn it. It was really important, I swear, something I was going to say about a league of their own. Um, I, I recently saw this Christian movie called breakthrough and I won't talk much about it cause I want to save that for the movie journal, but there's a moment that I, that made me laugh out loud because it was so melodramatic and so stupid in which, uh, the, the doctor in the emergency room, who's trying to, you know, 
revive this kid who's fallen through the ice. Uh, at one point, this poor actor has to sell, which he does not, but he has to sell the line. His name, the character's name is Kent. And so he goes, think Kent, think. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And he says, um, it, I'd say more heightened than I just did. Um, no, I remember the other moment I, I wanted to mention from league of their own. There's a part where they're, practicing and a ball gets away from Gina Davis mm-hmm. and a black woman on the standing on the sidelines, like a, a spectator yeah, picks up the ball and Gina Davis is like, you know, here, throw it here. And the black woman, uh, with a very strong aim, like strongly thrown and well aimed throw, throws mm-hmm. it over Gina Davis and two, I can't remember who else is, yeah. but throws it further and straighter and further. Um, and it's a corny moment, but I actually really like, that it's while the movie is a celebration of this women's league, yeah. this acknowledgement that it was a whites only women's league, yeah. which is not what the movie is about. But I like that. The, I like that, that moment is in there yeah. saying there are plenty of women who would have been very good at baseball right. who didn't have the chance to play. I like that moment, yeah. uh, even though it is, I mean, it's super on the nose, but, uh, but it it's works. a, but it's a nod to it. It's not, it doesn't veer off and become about that because, you know, sure. uh, I've seen movies that try to be about everything and they wind up not really being about anything. Right, and this, true. this just sort of acknowledges it and you, and you can pull from it exactly what you did yeah. and then move on. Not to suggest moving on is like, it's like, okay, can we just move on from this racial thing? Uh, it's not so much that as it is just like, that's not the story we te- we're telling, yeah. but that's a story worth telling. Speaking of racial things, let's okay. move on to Renaissance man. Okay. Which, which I've not seen since, uh, like middle school. Uh, yeah, I had a similar experience to Jumpin' Jack flash that I like had some memories of seeing snatches of it. Uh, but I rewatched the whole thing It's way too long. It's like over two hours long <laughs> and it's just Penny Marshall doing her dangerous minds, except it's on a military base instead right. of a, an inner city high school yeah. or whatever. And it's the penguin instead of Catwoman. Uh, um, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so yeah, Danny DeVito plays a, uh, ad exec who gets fired from a bunch of jobs, yeah. uh, and then ends up taking a job teaching um on a military base especially teaching essentially teaching like remedial students like he's basically the one like the ones who can't keep up with the non-physical part of basic training he's assigned to uh to teach them and so he ends up teaching them to love shakespeare yeah but I, the question is, do they wind up teaching him anything? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think they do. Um, it's also, uh, you say Dangerous Minds. I'd say it's closer to the Mighty Ducks. Like, it definitely right, feels I, like it's meant to be more... Cl- like, I specifically like mentioned that. Dangerous Minds because most of the characters that he's teaching are black and he's white. Oh, that's because right, Because yeah. there is a lot of that. In, in fact, there is in the most embarrassing part of the movie and maybe the most embarrassing part of Penny Marshall's filmography. The part, there's a part where he shows up and the teachers have prepared a rap for him uh, <laughs> about how they appreciate Shakespeare and what he's taught them. Oh, it, you mean the students? Yes. Yeah, sorry. Okay, the students. Yeah, yeah. Um, cause I was like, I remember that. And then you said the teacher was like, I didn't no, remember the faculty got involved. No, you're right. Okay. Because there is no faculty. Really. Right. It's just him. Um, and no one else cares. People just see him as he's there to, get them up to yeah. the base level so that they can pass him. And Gregory Hines plays the right. hard ass. Yeah. Um, he's someone that I feel like deserves a profile at some point. Like he was a huge star for yeah. a long time and then died, uh, unfortunately very young. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about him more in the next movie. Um, 
but uh, yeah, it, Renaissance Man again, it has its moments with the no. hanging out, but even then, so much of it is infused with this sort of self-aware racial stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the fact that he's white, and then the there's Mark Wahlberg, and um, there's an actor you would definitely recognize. I forget his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's the other? Who's the other like goofy white guy? Yeah. He kind of. I. <laughs> what's weird is when I when I think about Renaissance Man and I oh, do Gregory Sporletter. Okay. Do you know him? Uh, not offhand. Let me show you his picture because you absolutely recognize him. Oh him, yeah, all yeah. right. So they're like the two white guys, um, and yeah, there's there's just so much self aware, yeah, racial racial stuff, and uh, I do think that I do think it's supposed to be a joke at one point that Mark Wahlberg's character has like no rhythm because we know oh, yeah. at that point he was. Marky Mark still, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. it's the idea that he, like, that he didn't, his character didn't have any rhythm was probably, well, maybe he needed his funky bunch. Yeah. Maybe that's true. But yeah, that's true. Uh, anyway, what were you saying? Uh, just that like when I think of Renaissance man, I will often arrive at major pain by accident, <laughs> um, which I think is probably a better movie, but that's not saying much because major pain, which I don't think I ever actually saw, but it's not trying to be, like, profound yeah 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 there's a lot of saccharine yeah maudlin you know uh very broad charactery stuff yeah. uh in in renaissance man um yeah it's uh it, it's it's one of the lower points i think of the yeah. career but let's move on to an unexpected uh higher point for me Okay. Because I feel like uh, looking at Rotten Tomatoes, the movie does not have that great reputation, but I really enjoyed The Preacher's Wife, which is a remake of The Bishop's Wife. Yeah, this one I have not actually seen. Uh, sorry, um, I've seen scenes from, okay. but I've not actually seen it. The main thing I knew about it, because I had seen the um, Nick Broomfield, Whitney Houston documentary, was that Whitney Houston was apparently completely high out of her mind the entire mm. making of the movie, which is all the more testament to her talents, because she's great. Yeah. She's like, she's perf- the perfect role. So, um the premise is that Whitney Houston plays, she is the wife to a preacher in a, I want to say Chicago. It's some snowy city. Right. Um, town, uh, the preacher is played by Courtney, Courtney B. Vance. Always a good call. And then Denzel Washington shows up as essentially an angel who's been sent to realign this family and get them on the right path. But he's a character in and of himself. I mean, I, he's a character. Oh, sure. But he, like he has a whole arc in and of himself that he is like in this version of whatever angels are, he used to be human and he went to, he died young, mm-hmm. went to heaven and became an angel. And now this is his first assignment. So okay. this is, this is his first time back on earth since he was a human person. And so he's just, uh, a part of it is just him enjoying earthly things. Mm. Like he, when he, when he literally falls from heaven, he falls into the snow. And the first thing he does is make like snow angels. And he's like over the moon. It's like, it, it's a uh, part of what I liked about it is that Denzel Washington is such a charming actor. Oh, but yeah. He so often plays these sort of solemn Dow- characters Dower. Yeah. Or, or even if, or even if they aren't dour, there's like an, edged you know there's right. like like uh what's his name from training day you know we wouldn't call him dower yeah it's a very lively character but he's not exactly fun there's something just like this pure boyish goofiness of the character yeah. in the preacher's wife is a great look for denzel washington Washington, and he and he really and he really and also got gregory hines as the as the i guess villain although the movie is i don't think has any sharp enough edges to 
call anyone a villain, right. but he's basically a guy from the neighborhood who has done well for himself and within the movie's values and politics, the fact that he is not interested in giving back to the neighborhood he came from oh, okay. is what makes him the Got it. antagonist and but also the tempt the the tempter, I guess, because Courtney B. Vance's character basically Gregory Hines wants to buy the church to turn it into a parking lot parking or, a mall or something. Yeah, yeah. And then he wants to hire Courtney B. Vance to 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 preach at his new like state of the art mega church. Got it. Which is okay. outside of the neighborhood. Um uh, so that's the main premise, but uh, so much of it is just Denzel Washington and Whitney Houston, who have great chemistry together. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so much about the movie that you could show this to you could show this movie to anyone of any age. It's sort of I, I guess it feels like a throwback to the era of the Bishop's Wife, the Gary yeah. Grant movie, in that it's very G-rated and family-friendly for the most part. Uh, except there also is weirdly like gunplay in it, which I feel like seems like, Oh, it's a nineties movie set in a black inner city neighborhood. Right. We have to have clearly we need <laughs> to do this. Yeah. Someone needs to like at least get their window shot out or whatever. Yeah. That, that part was jarring. Um, but yeah, so it's a, this very superficially, this very chaste, uh, family friendly movie, but also the tension between Denzel Washington and Whitney Houston is like in old sort of Hayes code era movies for people who are paying attention. It's overpowering. It's, it's great. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's never really any literal threat that Whitney Houston is going to cheat on her husband, the preacher with an angel from heaven. Right. That's obviously not going to happen. But the fact that the fault lines in their marriage are there and she's, clearly so attracted to the, to Denzel Washington as anyone would be, um, sure. uh, really plays as a constant undercurrent in the movie. Uh, I, I really, really liked it. Um, okay. it's a, and it's a, I haven't talked very much about Courtney B Vance here. He has kind of a, uh, a thankless role that he really does, uh, a lot with, yeah. but he's definitely not one of the leads. This is a Whitney Houston, Denzel Washington vehicle. Okay. Uh, but Courtney B. Vance does a lot as does Gregory Hines with his, yeah. uh, couple of scenes. Um, all right. What is next? Next and last is riding in cars with boys. Have we, have we reached it? We have reached it with only yeah. a few percent, uh, percentage points to spare. 16%, 16%. We can do this. Okay. So this is now. Yeah. Um, this is the, obviously the most recent of her films that I've mm-hmm. seen. Cause it's the last most recent of her films, but it's also been the longest of, of any of these. Cause I saw writing cause with boys in the theater right. when it came out and not since then. So you having recently mm-hmm. watched it for the first time for the first time. All right. Then you will lead the charge here. Cause it's, which is good. Cause I need some water. Uh, I re I think I had heard very bad. Here's what I had heard. Not a good movie. Steve Zahn's great. Okay. That's what I, had that's heard. what I remember. Yeah. Um, so I went in honestly with my guard up a bit. Um, and I actually really enjoyed it. It feels like a movie, which okay. was something I had to, I had to adjust myself and, and kind of get to a point where that was okay. You know, uh, because it's a period film that takes place in the sixties and the eighties and all of that. Right. Uh, maybe not even the eighties, the seventies perhaps. Um, Right, because Steve Zahn is playing older than he is uh, in some parts of the movie, right? Yeah, and because yeah, everybody is. Yeah, so they're all right, it, yeah, they're all jumping around. So, um, 
and I actually like the structure of it. I think it's, I think it's one of the more ambitious movies that she has made because it takes place over a long period of time. Um, but, uh, you know, when you, when you see period movies, we have sort of taught ourselves like, all right, we don't want any of the music, any of like the big music from the era. Like we want some deep cuts, you know, we don't want this music to indicate where we are. Um, and so the fact that just, it's a, it's all top 40 stuff from that, you know, that whatever era it's in as a signifier, um, is something that like instinctively it bothers me, but then you're like, this is, this is the type of movie. This is, we are once again, dealing with archetypes, every, every outfit, every car is the essence of what it is more than the actual thing. Uh, and within that, I actually think it works really well. Um, and I think it's, it's tough cause I'm not sure, Drew Barrymore does well enough. I'm not sure if she's quite enough to carry a movie uh, on her own. And she has to play multiple ages. Right. And she's just not that skilled of an actress. But she does okay with it. She... And clearly, and everybody sounds like Penny Marshall, which I, th- which I think is funny, but, um, but no, uh, I, I actually, I responded to it really well. I thought, you know, you've mentioned the, the, you know, humanity of her films and this one really feels like that. I was early on, like when you see the, the frustration and the bitterness of the Drew Barrymore character, um, and then you think of the, the name of the movie, Honestly, part of me just felt like it was just going to be like, hey, look, look at all the fuck ups that she's dated and and her own father and all these people, you know. Uh, but what I like is that the film is more than fair to even even the jerks, not not like the one scene jerks like the jocks, you know, but characters who are supporting characters and and maybe not a, a wholly positive uh, force in, in her life. Penny Marshall still clearly working with the actors to give sympathetic, like sympathetic performances, but also truthful performances like these, like James Woods, I think does a great job as her dad who, who means well, but also has his own way of looking at things. And he's, he, you know, he's not an antagonist, but he can be antagonistic. Um, and so I, I really liked that. I, it's, it's a great ensemble. It's much more of an ensemble than I thought it was going to be, um, including Brittany Murphy, um, and Lorraine Bracco. And, uh, yeah, I, I definitely think that it fits with her larger filmography as far as ensemble, very naturalistic acting while in a heightened movie like world. Um, and mm. it, it worked for me and sure enough, Steve Zahn is great. Yeah. Um, and I feel like he's gone on to a little bit more dramatic roles, but I think part of the reason the people were at the time very focused on how good he was is because we hadn't seen him yeah. do anything like this before. Yeah. And yet he's still him. He's still yeah. Steve Zahn. It's just like, yeah kind of it's like when you see George Clooney and Michael Clayton where yeah. it's still George Clooney he's not doing anything remarkably different but it's so different as far yeah. as like energy level and natural charisma and that sort of thing so um, I, I yeah I I mostly liked it okay uh, did you see, we should wrap up because we're running out of battery but uh, did you see Lean on Pete uh, no I didn't I heard, I heard great things about it that's another one where Steve's on it's a it's a small part because the movie is very mm-hmm. episodic so he's only in a part of it um, but it's another one where he's on the one hand, he's playing a very dramatic role. But on the other hand, he's absolutely Steve's on, you yeah. know, when the kid is, when he blows through town and he meets up with Steve's character, who's also somewhat homeless. And he's like, uh, 
is there any, are there any jobs around here? And Steve Zahn's like, oh yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of jobs for homeless 16 year old boys around here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, all right. Yeah. So yeah, I, uh, I, I'm glad that you, uh, took the lead on writing cars in cars with boys. Cause it had been a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah, think, I do think, I think you would appreciate it more yeah. on a rewatch. Okay. I think as you get, I, I think if I had seen it when it came out, which is, you know, 2001. So it's, I, yeah. I'd, I'd be pretty young. I don't think I would have appreciated it, but I definitely appreciate okay. it more yeah, now. I should rewatch it. Yeah. I, I've definitely never, I, I, I like Drew Barrymore a lot in the right role. Sure. You know, um, as, uh, however you feel about, uh, fucking McGee, I like her in the <laughs> sure. Charlie's Angels movies. Yeah. Um, I like her in 51st dates. Oh yeah. Um, that, I feel like that's one of the good Adam Sandler movies, right? It's one of the f- passable Adam Sandler okay. movies. Um, but I know there's also a lot of, uh, issues in that one that wouldn't have occurred to me at the time in terms of, uh, uh, how the native Hawaiian characters are presented and the fact that oh. Rob, Sch- Rob Schneider is playing well. one of the native Hawaiian characters, which is crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That didn't occur to me at the time. Not, not to mention, sure. I read an article once that talked about what a hellscape Drew Barrymore's life must be. <laughs> like she wakes up every morning and sees this video. And like, what if she, what if one morning she saw the video and was like, I feel nothing towards this person, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. but now I have to spend the rest of the day being in love and potentially having sex with a total stranger. Like, yeah. It's, it's pretty rough stuff. It's one that really d- does not ask you to see the, uh, yeah. The implications. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we ended this Penny Marshall profile with talking about, yeah. uh, 50 first dates directed by probably, Peter Seagal, who made that one? Probably one of them, yeah. Um, I will say it is a shame. Like, yeah, it's. I, I thought of Penny Marshall as much more prolific, and she did do uh, a fair amount of TV. Um, but I was com- Peter Seagal. Com- yeah, that's a good call. That's a good pull. <laughs> I would not have been able to do that. Um, it's a shame that she stopped making movies after writing cars with boys. Um, yeah. Uh, and I, mean, I she still did some TV. She did a, yeah. Uh, a few episodes of the United States of terror, which mm. is not a show I ever watched, but, right. uh, seems like it could be up her wheel, uh, up her, up her wheelhouse. That's not how it goes. Up right, her alley yeah. or in her wheelhouse. Yeah. It's, but at the same time, like she was, I would say a fairly reliable filmmaker. There's a, you know, there's a couple, for lack of a better term, duds in there, but there are for almost every filmmaker. And just yeah. when you think of how, like the way you talk about the preacher's wife makes me want to watch it yeah. because I'm sure it'll be a, a fun, nice, entertaining, old school, entertaining experience. Yeah. Uh, just like league of their own and big. And I, and I would say writing cars, the boys tends more towards drama and because some of the stuff it deals with, but even, even the fact there's a, a wonderful scene earlier where the character she's pregnant and she is thinking about like throwing herself down the stairs. But so she just kind of squats at the top of the stairs and then like starts to let go, but doesn't have nearly enough philosophy and just kind of tumbles clumsily. <laughs> and it's, it's funny. And, but when you think about what she's doing, what she's yeah. doing. And so, so even that, like, I think she had, I think Penny Marshall had very good comedic instincts, able to work with ensembles and yeah, she's, she, she's missed, but also I'm bum- like, <laughs> unbeknownst to me, I've been missing her for a long yeah, time yeah. before she passed away. Well, so, uh, our takeaways here from Tyler says, watch 
writing cars with boys mm -hmm. i say watch the preacher's wife uh, and obviously watch big and in a league of their own yeah um i'd say i'd say awakenings, awakenings yeah, is, yeah I, I don't know it it's got its moments. Uh, it, has, it has its moments. And it does have a, a genuinely good committed performance by De Niro, who we didn't really yeah. talk about at all. Angela Kavner. Angela Kavner. All right. Um, so let's see. You can find us at battleshippretension.com, which is where you can also find the newest uh, um, set of commentaries. Mm -hmm. Now, if you are a Patreon member at patreon.com slash battleship pretension, you already get these commentaries. We, right. thought we watched four Keanu Reeves action movies in a row. Recorded commentaries with a rotating uh, cast of our uh, favorite uh, critics and comedians. Um, those are available for uh, 10 bucks. But if you're a Patreon member, which you can become at patreon.com slash battleship pretension, you get those and all the other Patreon episodes, uh, which we'll pick back up again soon. Um, that's that's a battleship pretension.com. So you can. What you can email us at David at com or Tyler at com. You can follow me on Twitter at Davy pretension. Uh, real quick. I want to mention what else is on the website right now. I reviewed, uh, or I, well, I, uh, you interviewed Susie Halewood. I did. And um, it was uh, delightful. Let's see. Um, at the trailer project, which is, uh, our friend, uh, Alexander, uh, Alex's, um, video series mm -hmm. in which he uh talks about trailers he talked about the trailer for uh Takashi Miike's 2002 movie Jitsuruko Jitsu Roku Andu Noboro Kyoto Denreka okay uh, um at what the hell are we watching uh Lincoln and some guests talked about the uh Roger Moore James Bond movies uh Alex also wrote about Ken Russell's Mahler um which got, is a very good movie uh yeah oh i've never seen it alex well alex is so prolific for the site this week he also reviewed girls of the sun uh all that is at the uh, at the website by the time you're hearing this i should have reviews up of um the man who killed don quixote and speaking of big i should have a review up of little hmm. the um can you uh, give me a preview how was it uh Man, I kind of want to save it for the movie, Joe. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, because I, I have a lot to say about okay. it and about my reaction to it. Okay. Um, but hopefully some of that will be in the review that I haven't written as of this recording. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, you can follow Tyler on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. Now, Tyler, your other podcast and website is called More Than One Lesson. It's at morethanonelesson.com. That's right. And uh, you can check out reviews by Bob Connolly of Paddleton, starring uh, Ray Romano. Oh, right. Uh, and he also reviewed Shazam. And then uh, Jacob at Salty Cinema review, uh, interviewed a friend of our show from many years ago named Dan Paris about a documentary okay. he made called Show Me Democracy. Oh, okay. Well, uh, check that out. Um, check us out at BattleshipRetention.com. Thank you for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.